Let's pray, shall we? Father, as we uh, come to this wonderful passage in Scripture, we ask, Lord, that uh, you, you might speak to our hearts this morning. Uh, Lord, we know that, uh, that in our own lives there is um, yeah, much uh, trial and adversity and things like that. Uh, we'll find just how uh, much the Apostle Paul struck in this passage. But also, Lord, how uh, he was able to triumph through that. And, uh, Lord, today we want to ask that you would help us see how we ourselves, as believers in Jesus Christ, as part of the body of Christ, that we ourselves can find uh, that same triumph in the midst of hardship and difficulty in our lives. So we just bring this time to you now and ask for your spirit again to be our teacher, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reading an article uh, a few weeks back um, about the plight of Christians in places like uh, Syria and Iraq. And uh, this lady um, who was from uh, a particular uh, um, area there in the Middle East was invited by uh, some churches in America to go and, uh, and speak. And uh, she went along at the invitation of a number of uh, pastors along with a, this particular Christian uh, aid organisation and uh, she went to different churches in the United States and uh, she was able to share with them uh, about her own uh, suffering under persecution and also that of her family, particularly her father, who had been uh, uh, viciously beaten on several occasions uh, and, uh, for his faith. <clears throat> As she went along to these congregations, she asked them to continue to pray for those Christians uh, in, who were suffering persecution, particularly in these uh, very much majority Muslim regions. But she uh, said, I want you to pray, but I want you to actually pray a different prayer. She knew that they had been praying for, you know, for this persecution to, uh, to, to stop, that these people would no longer suffer for their faith, that there would be uh, a work of God to bring about you know, a peace and that sort of thing in, this, in these regions. But she said, I'd like you to pray a different prayer. She says, don't pray for the persecution to be stopped. But instead, pray for the Christians there, for their boldness, their encouragement and for their faith that they might be witnesses for, for God's work and for God himself. This woman continued by saying, you know, that the, uh, in, there was a, a, an ongoing, a worsening uh, level of persecution in these places. But in the midst of this worsening ex, uh, persecution, Christians were actually being encouraged because people of the Muslim faith were actually coming to faith in Jesus Christ. They were seeing the witness of these, of these believers, the faith and trust that they had in God, the way in which they lived a lifestyle so vastly different from those who were persecuting them. And they were seeing in the lives of these Christian believers something which just shone out from them and said, just witnessed them that there was something which was far richer for a person's life than what the Muslim faith was actually teaching these people and was encouraged them to actually be actively oppressing and, uh, and victimising and, uh, and, and bashing these Christian people. She described how the atrocities carried out by Muslim extremists in the name of Allah only led many Muslim people to actually fact question their faith as they saw the, the, uh, the acts of, of groups like ISIS and things like that in these areas, they started to question what kind of a God encourages his people to carry out these kind of atrocities. 
and it's in fact turning people's minds and hearts to the one true God, the God of the Christian faith. You know, in essence, what this woman and the many believers like her in the Middle East had come to realise was that the same, it was the same truth that the Apostle Paul realises here in this passage before us this morning in 2 Corinthians, that God himself is able to bring triumph through the midst of adversity. We're going to be looking at this passage this morning just under three headings. We're going to be looking at it under Paul's adversity, Paul's encouragement, and finally Paul's sufficiency. The Apostle Paul had founded the Corinthian church on his second ministry, his second missionary journey, and we read, that about, read about that in Acts chapter 18. Paul himself had an incredible love for these people. He'd spent 18 months there in Corinth, building up the church and nurturing these new believers in their faith, encouraging them and, uh, and preaching the gospel and, uh, and, and building them up. And he had he developed this wonderful uh, relationship with these people, as you would, having spent such intimate time with them over such an extended period. However, after Paul left the church, we find that, uh, that Paul um, had became aware that some, uh, some false teachers had actually infiltrated the church. We see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, which we'll come to at another point in time a little bit later, and a little bit later down the track in our series. But as a consequence of these false teachers coming in, what had happened is that a number of people within the church, a number of these believers that Paul had, had spent so much time and effort and energy into you know, sort of nurturing in their faith, they had actually started to follow these people in their teaching and, and they had turned away from Paul and they, had, uh, they were starting to oppose Paul and, uh, and, you know, and, and, and say bad things about his name and question his, uh, his apostolic authority, question his motivations in, in his gospel ministry. And Paul was, uh, you know, was just absolutely, you know, he was greatly disturbed in his spirit about this. And who are these people who he considered to be family, brothers and sisters in the Lord? And they're turning their backs on him. And his ministry had come under severe attack. In fact, this whole letter of 2 Corinthians is, is in, in a sense, Paul's kind of um, apologetic, if you like, for his ministry to sort of help the people of, the, of the, the Corinthian church understand that he was indeed the apostle of God and that these false teachers and the stuff that they were teaching was completely at odds with the gospel that these Corinthians had first responded to and had first come to faith in Jesus through. And so he visited the church at Corinth again and it was an intensely painful visit, we discover, as he tried to counter this false teaching and, and address the, the willful sin that was, that was occurring in the life of the church there at Corinth. But having failed at this attempt, it appears that the Apostle Paul then travelled away and, uh, and he wrote another letter to the church, probably from Ephesus, and had it delivered to them by, uh, by one of his co-workers in Titus. And Paul continued on with his ministry. But the matters that was going on in the Corinthian church weighed heavily on Paul's heart. We see that in verse 4 of chapter 2 this morning where it says, Paul says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. We get a window there into the, into the apostle's life and, 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 and into the anguish that he was feeling because of what was going on in the church there. 
And he says, I wrote to you not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Even in the midst of the, the, these people turning their backs on Paul, Paul wanted them to, 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 to recognize the, the truth of the gospel and to get back in, in line with what God's word was saying. And he had this incredible heart for them. And he said, I love you and I want what's best for you. You can see this incredible pastoral heart of Paul here in this passage. And then here again in our passage this morning in verses 12 and 13, we also see this, this anguish as Paul was feeling. He says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Paul is at Troas. Troas is this, uh, this little uh, town up here, right on the Aegean Sea. And Corinth, you'll find, is over here. And this is where Paul had been ministering to. And, uh, but Paul now is, up, is here in Troas, and he's been waiting for Titus to come back and deliver news about how the Corinthians had received this letter from him. But when Paul got to Troas... Titus hadn't, got, hadn't arrived there yet. He hadn't got there. And as Paul ministered there in that particular city, as a, God opened up a door of ministry for him there, that, that there was a fruitfulness of gospel ministry here in that place. And as Paul went about preaching the gospel, he just could not get over what was, you know, he just, just had this burden in his heart for the Corinthian church. His mind just couldn't focus on what was on the ministry at hand. Paul had hoped to meet up with Titus in Troas to get word from to get word from him as to how the Corinthians had responded to his letter. But when Titus wasn't there, it just played so much on Paul's mind. And I wonder, have you ever worried so much about something that you just can't focus on anything else? You know what it's like, don't you? It just continue, it just seems to just push everything out and there's just only one thing that matters. This thing that you're just continually worrying, you've got that anxiety about, you're stressing about, you just, you just can't concentrate on anything else. And that's how Paul finds himself here in Troas. And even though God has opened up this incredible door of gospel ministry here in that place, Paul's heart is just not in it. Even though this ministry was going so well, Paul's heart and mind were elsewhere. Wonder what was going through Paul's mind. You know, thinking, well, Titus isn't here. I wonder, you know, what on earth is going on? You know, if Titus hasn't met me back here in Troas like we agreed, then have things gone from bad to worse there in Corinth? Have, have the people responded so, you know, negatively to my letter? Are they so opposed to that that now they're so completely opposed to me and the church is falling apart? Do you ever wonder, or do you ever actually sort of think about God's church in that way? Do you ever think about your brothers and sisters in the Lord in that way? That when there is perhaps, you know, they're sort of starting to perhaps drift away from God a little bit. And going down a path which you know is is not going to be good for them. Do you have a burden in your heart for fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord in those kind of situations? 
a burden that would cause you to, to be praying earnestly for them? To be trying to, to come alongside them in a loving and gracious way and, and help point them to the truth in Jesus Christ? To understand the, 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 the things that are happening perhaps underneath the surface of that person's life that is causing them to walk that way. Do you have such a burden for the church of God and for the people of God that, 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 you, that, that you, you, know, there is, you can't think of anything else apart from, apart from what's going on in those that, in that situations? Because as brothers and sisters in the Lord, folks, we are so connected together in Jesus Christ. We are part of the body of Christ and, it's, and as the scriptures tell us, when one part of the body hurts, then the whole body hurts. When one part of the body rejoices, then the whole body rejoices. This is the kind of community that God has called us into and the kind of community that he wants us to be practicing in our in our day-to-day lives in a, as we as we minister with one another as we journey together with one another in this christian walk and when some are struggling in the church god calls us to 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 bear that burden ourselves with those people To recognise that because they are hurting, it affects me. It affects us as the body of Christ. This is what Paul is experiencing here. He wondered what on earth was going on. That phrase, we see that Paul was burdened so much he had no rest in his spirit that he had to take leave of the people in there in Troas and go into Macedonia. That term, take leave, suggests a sudden and unplanned departure on Paul's part. See, he just could not bear it any longer. He had to find out what the Corinthians' response was to his letter. He had to find Titus. And so he followed the main way of travelling that day into Macedonia, hoping to find Titus to come across him on the road. The apostle's heart and mind were in turmoil. John MacArthur describes it by saying, it was a dark hour in the apostle's life. A dark hour. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5 gives us an even deeper insight into the apostle's state of mind. You turn over there just quickly. Chapter 7 and verse 5 says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Speaking here of a, almost like a depression that had come over Paul because of how he was feeling about what was going on there in Corinth. I wonder where you turn when you find yourself in such situations or circumstances. When there is something in your life that is just so burdening you down, so weighing you down, that it's just completely overwhelming you, 
that you cannot think of anything else. You just cannot get past it in your life. That there is a darkness that, that kind of envelops you. Where do you turn in those situations and circumstances? I think the next words of the Apostle gives us not only a great insight into, uh, into where he turned, but where, where we can find a peace and comfort ourselves from the God of all comfort in such times. Paul's encouragement, verses 14 to 16. You would think that when Paul is, is at this one of the lowest points in his life, one of the most you know, deep and dark places in his life, the last thing you would expect from Paul's lips would be praise to God. When we find ourselves in those situations, oftentimes the hardest things that we can do is bring ourselves to actually praise God in the midst of those, those situations and circumstances, right? And yet Paul says, but thanks be to God. There's almost kind of like a, 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 a triumphalism in this, this, this praise of God. This incredible declaration of thanksgiving. Well, how can Paul be so thankful at such a time? Well, the reason Paul can be so thankful is this. It's because his thankfulness flows from an understanding of God's sovereignty and God's purpose in his life. But not only that, but also from the knowledge that Paul and his circumstances are being used by God to spread the fragrance of the knowledge of God everywhere. Did you ever think or take time to contemplate that truth in your life in those kind of situations? That through those situations, God is so sovereignly in control. He's so able and powerful enough to actually use you and your circumstances in order to spread the fragrance of the gospel of God and the knowledge of God everywhere around you. The imagery that Paul uses here of this special Roman celebration known as the Roman Triumph. And during this great procession for a, for a victorious Roman general, he would ride in a, in a chariot um, drawn by these, these four marvellous horses and to the cheers of this incredible crowd, like a, a bit of a ticker tape parade that we might have for the you know, you know, Olympians who come back from the Olympic Games who have won medals or you know, football teams who have, have won, their, uh, won their grand finals and things like that. And this general would be, at the, at the front of the parade would be the, the state officials and the, and the Roman senators would, would lead this parade and behind them would be the, the trumpets and there would be these loud trumpet blasts and it would, you know, people would be cheering and, uh, and there would be, you know, petals of flowers being thrown and things like that. And following the trumpeters would then come the, uh, the spoils that had been carted away from the defeated enemy, all of the riches that, that had been, you know, been secured by the, uh, the general and his army. And then behind these would come the defeated enemy and the prisoners themselves, knowing that at the end of this procession, many of them would be taken probably into the Colosseum or something like that and executed. And then finally behind them came the priests who carried these censers filled with incense. It was part of their worship to their god Jupiter who was the king of the Roman gods and protector of the state. He was their supreme god if you like. And then came the general and his, and his army. 
And Paul has got this image in, in mind. He likened this procession to the way in which God leads his believers in triumph in Jesus Christ. Christ himself is the conquering general, the one who has defeated the enemies of God and his people, Satan, sin and death. But what causes a little bit of conjecture is always, it's how Paul views himself in this procession. Does he see himself as part of Christ's conquering army, rejoicing in the great victory which our leader Jesus Christ has won? Or, like some other commentators suggest, does Paul actually see himself as being perhaps one of the captives who are being led in that train? The language here is actually a little bit unclear in the original language. But I think actually that's, that, that, that's, that's done on purpose. I think Paul is being deliberately ambiguous here because he wants us to, to, to understand it from both points of view. Because as believers united with Christ, we ourselves certainly are beneficiaries of all that Christ has secured through his death and resurrection. And so there is that triumphant victory in Jesus Christ over Satan, sin and death. For all who belong to him. And so in one sense there is this triumphant march with, with Christ in this event celebrating that victory. But there can be an argument also made that states that Paul sees himself as a prisoner, as a conquered prisoner put on display. That he was previously God's enemy but had now has been defeated by God. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 speaks about how we were God's enemies. In fact, Paul often speaks of himself as being God's servant and God's slave. The false teachers in in Corinth basically had used Paul's view of himself, this, this recognition that he was a slave, along with Paul's sufferings to convince a number of the people in the church that this was a sign that God could not possibly be on Paul's side. That how on earth could this marvellous and majestic and victorious God actually be on Paul's side when he's, when he's suffering so much and when he's struggling so much? We hear that kind of teaching today, don't we, in churches? That you know, if we're suffering so much in our lives, then you know, there's got to be something wrong with us. We don't have enough faith or we're not, you know, we're not walking with God closely enough or things like that. I mean, how could divine favour actually rest upon Paul in such human adversity and misfortune? It's interesting that the theme of 2 Corinthians is about how God's glory is, is revealed or manifest in Paul through his suffering. And that God's power is actually revealed most spectacularly through human weakness. We'll come to that in 2 Corinthians 12 a little bit later on. And yes, being captured by Christ made Paul a slave to Christ, but he's not being led in triumph by a vengeful God. Instead, he's been captured by a God of love. The commentator David Garland puts it like this when he says, God's love revealed to Paul that deliverance can only come from defeat of the old life. 
that God rescues us by shattering the fortified walls of our own strength, our own wisdom and our own righteousness, making us slaves of Jesus Christ. And yet, folks, we are more than slaves because we are also sons and heirs of God. We are more than slaves. We are also sons and heirs. And if the means of Christ's victory came about through humiliation and the suffering of him on the cross, then we as his followers should expect that our victory will also follow a similar path. Wouldn't you expect? One commentator states, The cross of Christ not only determined Paul's message, but it also determined his style of ministry. The cross of Christ. Paul then uses another metaphor in referring to the effects of, of him being paraded around before God as, as, you know, as God's prisoner. He speaks about a fragrant, a fragrance or an aroma. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. And you don't know about you, sometimes you walk through the, uh, the shopping centres like North Lakes or Chermside or something like that, you'll, you'll pass some of these shops that sort of sell these, uh, you know, those, all the soaps and the scented candles and, and, and those sorts of things. You know, the shops that you've actually got to hold your breath as you actually walk past so you don't suffocate. <clears throat> the perfume's overpowering, isn't it? It's overpowering. It just permeates everything within that, that, that whole area. And just as that perfume spreads everywhere, God is saying here that, that, that through us, through, through believers in Jesus Christ and through our circumstances, God is able to, to spread the aroma of the knowledge of God through his gospel and to spread it everywhere as his, as his people live their lives for him, whether they be in good situations or difficult situations. But especially, Paul says, through our suffering. And just as you cannot help but notice perfume, unless you've lost your sense of smell, people cannot help but notice the aroma of God. They're forced to take notice. Because God uses human preachers to give off this aroma of the gospel. And although we, we give off this aroma to, uh, to God, to, to, to men, it's also God himself who smells that. It's a pleasing smell to him. So the question for us today is this, is does our life smell of the gospel? Does your life this morning, in the weeks that, you know, as you go about your, your day-to-day stuff throughout the weeks, whether that be in the, you know, the, the play, your workplaces, whether that be in your homes, whether it be in your neighbourhoods, whether it be here in the church, does your life smell of the gospel today? Is God, through you, spreading the, the, the aroma of the knowledge of God through the people that you come into contact with each week? Because that's God's purpose for you. That is God's purpose for all of us. Now, the smell 
will be to some a pleasant smell, but to others it'll be a stench. It'll be something which will will make them turn away from it in in horror and, and, and recoil. You know, in the Roman triumph, both the victors and the vanquished smell the incense that went up from the priest's senses. And to the victors, it reminded them of the sweet smell of victory and honour, but to the vanquished, it reminded them of their impending doom, their execution that was coming up. And as we live out the gospel, it can itself be a testimony to some that they indeed love the Lord Jesus Christ and that their salvation is secure. But to others, it will confirm to them that, you know, it will confirm them in their sin and in their rejection and their rebellion towards God. That will be the case. And most likely there will be more people who will see it as a stench than who will see it as a pleasant aroma. But that is our lot as followers of Jesus Christ because it was his lot in life. But God says that that most powerfully and most wonderfully in those situations, as we experience that hardship in our lives, God is even able to make that smell an even more powerful one and to reach more and more people just like those Christians in Iraq and in Syria and places like that. What an incredible privilege. What an incredible responsibility too. That's why Paul can say, who's sufficient for such things? Who is sufficient? Well, Paul's sufficiency is found in verse 17. He says, we are, what, we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. What gives Paul the boldness and confidence to proclaim the gospel and to address the moral and the theological issues in this church in Corinth and in the many churches that he, uh, you know, he, uh, he started and he and he's spent time with? Well, the, what makes him, you know, what gives him that boldness is that he speaks the truth as one commissioned by God Himself. One who speaks the truth is one commissioned by God and who ministers with the recognition that it is God who sees and God who will indeed hold him accountable for his ministry. Paul says we speak as men of sincerity. It's interesting that word sincerity actually means to actually hold up to the light, to hold up under scrutiny. And Paul says that, that, that as I speak, I'm, my, God is able to hold up my ministry, hold up my life under scrutiny and see that my heart is pure in that ministry that, I, that, that God has called me to. And Paul says that is my sufficiency because God commissions me but also God empowers me. He's God. Paul speaks as one whose message comes from God. He speaks as one who uh, ministers in the sight of God. He speaks with as one who has the power for him supplied by God. And he speaks knowing that one day he will be judged by God and will receive his reward for being faithful. Folks, today... We ourselves have been commissioned by this same God. This same God who commissioned Paul back there in the, uh, you know, in the early stage of the church is the same God that commissions us today. 
The same all-sovereign, all-powerful, all-conquering God is the same God for Paul as he is for us today because he is a God who never changes. And we ourselves have been captured by Christ to be put on display. To be put on a display as an example to others that God himself is indeed the all-conquering, all-powerful, sovereign ruler of all things. And it is his prerogative to use us as he chooses. To use all situations in our life for his purposes, whether they be easy or difficult. So instead of seeing suffering as a sign of God's disfavour, perhaps then like we, like the Apostle Paul, should find encouragement by seeing it as God's way of powerfully displaying his grace in our lives and then using that to point others to the all-surpassing, all-sufficient, all-glorious Christ. Because this is the way that we find triumph through adversity. Isn't that something to praise God for? That God would want to use us in that kind of a way? So perhaps the next time that you're experiencing adversity in your life, I pray that God through his Holy Spirit might actually draw your mind and your heart back to this passage. And in the words of the Apostle Paul, you'll be able to say, but thanks be to God who in Christ, remembering is it in Christ, That is where we get our resources and our help and our strength in order to live this way. That in Christ, God leads us in a triumphal procession. A triumphal procession. You are on display for God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, today we've been reminded that you are indeed the God who is the one who leads us in triumphal procession in Jesus Christ. And that in the midst of adversity, that triumph can be ours. But only in him and through him. We thank you that you're a God who loves us so much. That you would call us to be your children. But we recognise too that the Lord Jesus Christ has himself set for us our example. And that just as he endured suffering and hardship and shame and ridicule and those sorts of things as he obeyed you, that will be, for many of us, our lot as well as we faithfully live out our lives for you. But in the midst of that, we can take great delight and rejoicing in the fact that through those situations, especially those situations, you are able to use us to spread the aroma, the fragrance of the knowledge of God to everyone everywhere. Thank you for that. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to come to a time around the communion table now, and I think it's very, very fitting this morning as we've looked at this passage to...